Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where we review films. Yay! <laughs> Kaboom! Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I don't have a nickname, and that's all you need to know. Well, also listen to my words about film. With me, yeah. as always, is my uh, intelligent, uh, scintillating, towering co-host... William, introduce yourself. He's buttering me up for something, and I don't know what yet. <laughs> My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Every, yes. <laughs> I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing the new releases Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. We're reviewing Cinderella. We're reviewing Worth. And we're reviewing Superhost. No, like you, you wanted your... Uh, your... Russ Whitehead voice there for that last one. I, I was imagining, you know, like uh, Bob Barker, but with a cape. You know, just flying around. <laughs> just, super host. Yeah. Uh, I, I was watching The Price is Right today oh. with Drew Carey. Drew oh, Carey's yeah. grown quite a long beard. He looks completely different than oh, he used to. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's his prerogative, but yeah. Oh, yeah, I, knock yourself out. Just, you know. I, I do love that, that he is a, a game show host now. Like, that's yeah. the... the this part of his career now he just gets to host the price yeah. is right stand up comics get to settle in to like a long mm. you know N- nice cozy long, retirement long cozy gig it's like yeah. yeah yeah I'm gonna stay here as long as I can yeah, yeah. nobody ever stays host of like a, a game show like a long running game show for like a little bit that's something yeah. you do for a long time that's 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 uh that, that's like put your kids through college yeah kind of yeah. kind of vibe. what if you could host any game show got a real game show got a real game show okay it doesn't have to be on the air now they could bring it back mm. What game show would you host? Well, I, I mean, I want to host Jeopardy, but uh, okay. But you gotta have a backup. But, Jeopardy's yeah. Jeopardy's Jeopardy's the crown jewel. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> right, like, we're holding it for Lavar Burton. Like we're definitely <laughs> trying to get Lavar Burton that gig. So, like, so, so let's, right. if you can't do that, what's your what's your? Oh dream golly, what do I want to host? Um, if if we could bring back uh, Double Dare, ooh, oh, if you'd we could, be good at Double if Dare. we could bring back Double Dare, I'd want to host Double yeah, Dare. That'd be a good one. Uh, Double Dare for I don't know if they did bring it back actually because they've been rebooting everything but uh, Double Dare was uh, a game show for kids Mm -hmm. and they would ask you uh, a trivia question it was teams of two and they would Mm -hmm. ask your team a a trivia question if you didn't know you could say dare and it would be go it would go to the other team and the uh, dollar value would go up and if they didn't know they could say Double Dare and it could go back to you and you could answer it a third time and then you'd have the highest dollar value if you still didn't know you could still win the money by saying, we'll take the physical challenge. Yeah. And they would bring out a giant taco or something. <laughs> and you'd lay down in it and they'd spray you with glop. And you'd have to like throw rings over your partner who is like dressed as a carrot or some such thing. <laughs> and they'd play a lot of loud music and all the kids in the audience would cheer and you'd get mess everywhere and you'd get covered with goo. And if you won, you got the dollar amount. Nice. This is the greatest thing that's ever been on television. I loved Double Dare when I was a kid. <laughs> I wanted to be you. on Double Dare when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, it, it started on Nickelodeon, but I saw it on syndicated network TV. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and there was a lot of green slime, things like, you You have to find a red flag hidden deep in this gigantic nose full of, like, quote, snot. And you had to, like, dig. Yeah. It looked like cake frosting. You had to dig it oh, out. Oh, yeah, of yeah. And I'm sure, it was, I'm sure it was perfectly healthy. I'm sure it wasn't, oh, like, yeah, actual. So, some we, kind of, we mined actual snot from the audience in order to. Uh, no, no that, that that wouldn't be into, like, the shock humor of the early 2000s. That's, yeah, that's true. 
Um, but yeah, but Double Dare was really, really fun. A lot, of, a lot of, a lot of goo, really kooky. It was hosted by a guy named Mark Summers. I could never beat him. Beat him, just sort of how unflappable he was in the yeah. face of all this weird stuff. No, nah, Mark Summers was uh, was mm. a titan. I would go for. I want to bring back Remote Control, <laughs> which which is completely dated now. Oh, it's totally remote dated. Remote Control now. You, is not not a novelty any longer. You would you would need to to update it this match. Back in like the eighties, I think. Uh, MTV had a short-lived game show called Remote Control, where everyone was in lounge chairs, and the whole thing was they would show you like it was like lazy, lazy boy recliners, yeah. yeah, and they would like show you like split seconds of television, and you have to tell them like what TV show or movie it was, or or answer trivia questions, or answer trivia questions yeah, about TV. It and was like, like a snack break, and they'd pour food on your head. And, yeah. yeah, that's a great show. And, and Let's the, do that show. And it was MTV, so this like the it was like the Jeopardy screens, but it was like a bunch of TVs stacked up all crooked. And they were like, really oh, yeah, they're oblong and everything. Yeah. It looked like it looked like Tim Burton had designed it back mm. in the eighties when he was interesting. Yeah, <laughs> but back when he was, we wasn't doing the same Tim Burton shtick. He would have like weird like Pee Wee Herman shtick. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah. It was it was, uh, it was pretty special. Yeah, remote control was was a fun one. I know we should review some movies. Uh, <laughs> we're, before, we're old. We remember yeah. old TV. But actually, before we get to that, uh, something just happened today that I talked mm. about. That's a real, real bummer. Mm. Is uh, we we lost another titan of cinema. We sure did. Yeah, um, we, we lost uh, the great Jean Paul Belmondo, uh, who is probably best known for one of the one of the more significant films in film history, mm. uh, Jean Luc Godard's Breathless. Uh, Jean Paul Belmondo. Um, Embodied cool. That was the gig. Yeah, that, 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 that's why you hired Belmondo, and yeah. and he was and he wasn't Jean Paul Belmondo. He was credited with just his last name, starring Belmondo. Belmondo. Like they don't do that with movie with act, actors too much anymore. Yeah. I, I know they did that with uh, Boris Karloff back in the Frankenstein days, starring right. Karloff. Like you, I think Schwarzenegger and Stallone used to have that much. Yeah, that much credibility, or or for, mm. to a lesser extent, your Van Dams or or Seagals. Mm. But like nowadays, you don't do that with like Tom Holland. Mm. Holland, yeah, is <laughs> Spider Man. You should do that with Tom Hardy. I think he could do it. That'd be good. Hardy, Venom, starring Hardy. <laughs> uh. No, Jean-Paul Belmondo, yeah, is a, a French actor, uh, has a huge long career of uh, films he did in France. He worked uh, with a lot of the, the titans of the, the French film industry all throughout the, the 50s and 60s. Uh, he did classics, he did operas, but he's best known for playing the ultra-cool criminal guys who held guns. Um, yeah. Most notably in Breathless, which uh, was... It certainly wasn't the first film to do this, and it's debated as to whether or not it's the first film of the French New Wave, because some were in production before it was released, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's considered one of the most important films of the French New Wave, uh, and it, the French New Wave changed a lot of uh, how we talk about cinema, because it was a film made by critics, and it's a film about characters whose very actions and lifestyle is informed by the films they saw, and this was... Yeah deep enough into film history that we could start telling stories like that. Uh, you know, filmmakers were always influenced by filmmakers, but they rarely made films about people who watched films as a hobby. Well, it was considered a little um, well, it's not very gauche s- to like talk about movies when you're in a movie. Movies yeah, yeah. are supposed to bring you into a new world. If we started talking about movies, it would break that law. But the older we got, the more into multiple generations of growing up in film we got, the more common it was that people did grow up on movies and did talk about mm. movies. Um, 
I think this hit critical mass in the 90s with films like Clerks or uh, Pulp Hmm. Fiction where people were were actively talking about it constantly. Well, that was the next next generation of it. um, So like with Breathless, we started talking about it. People started hmm. talking about people that they'd seen in movies. But by the 90s, people were just living in it. And that was just all they had to talk about in some movies. But uh, yeah, uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo kind of uh, exemplified that type of... Maybe not self-aware, but a movie-built character. Mm-hmm. He was the next Humphrey Bogart, very openly so. That was that was, and, and again, that and was the idea of Breathless uh, is that he would be. He and, was a, he was like this um, really petty criminal, actually, but he had such well, he's, he's coolness kind of a, and, and yeah, charm. The, the, his character in Breathless is kind of pathetic, but he yeah does have that sort of cool charm. Yeah. he understands how uh, what cool is and what it looks like, and I think Jean-Paul Belmondo. Might even be credited for really uh, defining what cool was in a lot of ways. Well, every once the, in the a term, while, an actor will do that. I yeah, think, I think like for a bit, J- James he did. Dean yeah, or, or Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando yeah, yeah. And, and Belmondo was was one of them for yeah. sure. Like he was one of the linchpins in cool. Um, if if you can see some of his French movies, he's great. I've seen him in uh, like The Burglars. Uh, Piero LeFou he did a lot of films with uh, with Jean Luc Godard. In addition to Breathless, he did Piero LeFou. He did yeah. um, A Woman Is a Woman. Mm. Uh, I'm actually, uh, and I have to admit to this, mm. I am shockingly poorly versed in the works of Jean Paul Belmondo. I've, I've seen Breathless. Yeah, okay. I've seen a few of those movies here and there, but you know he was very prolific. He worked for many, many years. He was incredibly mm. made multiple movies every single year in the '60s and the '70s, and I saw a couple. Yeah, so he, I'm not an expert here. I just but, I yield the floor. Yeah, but he's he's worked with uh, Claude Lelouch and he's worked with Agnes Varda and you know just was a, a one of the like an, an Alain René. He was one of the like more important figures of French cinema yeah. from uh, the late '50s all the way through. Uh, well, today uh, mm. he, he his. Output sort of fell off near the uh, near the end of his career. He didn't make a lot of films in the last you know two decades, but you know he was he was in his eighties, so I think he was sort of mm. pretty much retired at that point. Uh, but rest in peace, Jean Paul Belmondo. Mm. You you changed the face of cinema and how we think about what cool people are. <laughs> um, I've decided I'm going to uh, uh, in order to. You know, when, when someone passes away, there's this tendency to want to see some of their movies, especially mm. a movie you have seen before and loved, or a movie you never saw before and always meant to get around to. I'm going to get around to, since normally I would ask you, what's your favorite Paul mm. Jumbo Belmondo movie, and I only have like the one. I'm going to get around to Hold Up. Okay. Hold Up uh, is a Jean Paul Belmondo film uh, directed by Alexandra Arcady, and it is the movie that the Bill Murray film Quick Change is based on. That's right. And oh, Belmondo yeah. plays the Bill Murray role, and in the Gina Davis role, Kim Cattrall. Uh, oh, mm, who would be better? Well, I guess I we'd have to see. Kim yeah. Cattrall, huh? Isn't it? It's like it's sort of like oh, 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 yeah, <laughs> oh, it's Kim Cattrall. Oh, that could, huh? So uh, I need to. See, <laughs> a quick change is one of the funniest movies ever made, if you ask me. So uh, yeah, I am. Uh, I, I will at some point. I will check out Hold Up. That All will right. be my. That will be my penance um, for for not being more familiar with his work. Uh, and hopefully, Pendants might be a bad uh, word. I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's probably good. I'm, like, yeah. I'm a big fan of uh, Jean-Pierre Melville. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did. He's best known for his crime movies. He did a bunch of different kinds of movies. But yeah, he mm. he's um, the, the spearhead of uh, a fan of French noir films that are just 
excellent, mm-hmm. excellent movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Jean-Pierre Melville made uh, all these sort of films about sort of gentlemanly criminals, and they have sort of a, a light quality. They, even if they're dealing with like death or serious uh, subject matter, they tend to trip along in, in this really sort of appealing kind of way. And uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo uh, was in a couple of Jean, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville films, including Les Doulots, uh, which was translated into uh, American as the, the Finger Man. Les Doulots means like the hat man, the man who wears the hat, uh. which is uh, criminal slang for like a, a, a stool pigeon, mm. a, a squealer. You, you put on the hat, and that means you're squealing to the cops. So, but I, I recommend Les Doulots. That was from 19, the early 60s. Um, they did a remastering with that one a, a couple of years back, and I really, really enjoyed it. Hmm. So yeah, see Les Doulots. Uh, see Breathless if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah, just check out The Burglars. Check out anything that uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo plays a, a gentlemanly criminal in. You'll understand a lot more about Western culture. <laughs> All right. All right, well, uh, all right, well, uh, Jampa Belmondo, you will be missed. Yeah, Thank yeah. you, and uh, we have to move on. Uh, let's review the big release of the week, and here mm-hmm. is a film that Whitney has seen that I haven't. Mm-hmm. I wasn't uh, uh, able to... Uh, basically, the only option I had for seeing this movie was in a crowded movie theater, and I chose not to. Uh, I will see it at some point down the road. Maybe I'll try to see it at a drive-in, or if that takes too long, I'll wait until it's on Disney+. Plus. Let's talk about... Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Whitney, uh, yes. tell us about your... Fami- First of all, tell us about your familiarity with the character of Shang-Chi. I have no familiarity with Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi ah. is a... Is a I, I had never heard the name mentioned before until they announced the existence of this film. Ah, uh, Shang-Chi comes from 1970s Marvel Comics, where I think it was Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu, is a uh, martial arts-based superhero. Yeah, it started when uh, Marvel wanted to uh, license the rights to do... Uh, a, t- a comic book series based on the hit TV show Kung Fu. Mm. Uh, they could not get those rights. So instead, mm. they decided to uh, license the rights to the character Dr. Fu Manchu, uh, mm. who is this actually really negative... Uh, so uh, it's a racist stereotype. He's a racist stereotype villain yeah. uh, who goes who dates back to like the 10, 1910s, 1920s, uh, and has been sort of a pulp figure uh, for, mm. for many, many years. And they developed Shang-Chi as the son, the heroic son of the supervillain. Uh, and uh, the character of Shang-Chi has been around the Marvel Universe in and out ever mm. since. He's had multiple comic book series of his own. Uh, he's... There's two, like, great martial artists in the Marvel Universe... And uh, one of them is Iron Fist, who he had his own Netflix series. Mm. And once you start focusing on Iron Fist's story, you realize that, oh, he's Batman, but he's Iron Fist. Like, it's kind of the same <laughs> well, fucking story. I know, I know Iron Fist has a superpower. Like, he's called Iron Fist because, yeah. like, he can harden his, magically harden his hands. So he can, yeah. like, punch through walls and shit. And, yeah. um, uh, the series Netflix did that's what I kept hearing. I wasn't really so interested. Really bad. The main character was really miscast. The mm. fight scenes weren't great, which is really all you want them to be is good. Like you <laughs> get away with so much. Good choreography. The villains were dull. Like it just it, it was easily the worst of that whole mm. cycle. Um, and uh, but Shang Chi uh, remained untouched until now, and now we get a big budget uh, Shang Chi movie starring uh, Simu Liu. Mm-hmm. Uh, starring Aquafina, starring uh, the legendary Tony Leung and mm. Michelle Yeoh. Uh, we got Ben Kingsley apparently shows up in this one. We got a whole mm. bunch of people yeah. uh, showing up for this well, big Marvel movie. The um, the fact that he's the son of Fu Manchu is you know, 
this is because Fu Manchu is, is a racist stereotype. Mm-hmm. He's the stereotype character that um, they ended up uh, Marvel Comics sort of making a very Fu Manchu like character that they called the Mandarin. Yeah, the Mar- I, uh, Marvel lost the rights to Fu Manchu yeah. a long time ago. And on top of it being just in poor taste to use that character, so yes, but they they yeah. cre- so they created a character just like Doctor Fu Manchu yeah. called the Mandarin and. Uh, the Mandarin uh, was one of Iron Man's nemeses. Mostly, yeah. yeah it mostly co- comes Iron out Man of like guy. the Iron Man corner of the universe. Mm. And um, the character was actually used in Iron Man 3, the Shane Black movie. Well, sort of. But, well, sort of. They actually did it in a very clever way. Um, they set up the Mandarin as uh, sort of this Middle Eastern warlord. They kind of they changed the character around. And mm. then there was a twist with the character in the middle, and it's pretty well known now, so I'm just going to tell you what it is. Oh, yeah, the movie's like, what, eight Where, years old now? Come yeah, yeah uh, that uh, the, uh, Iron Man finally tracks down the Mandarin. He's played by uh, Ben Kingsley. And it turns out that he, Ben Kingsley was, in fact, an actor who was hired to appear on camera as the Mandarin as a way of um, mucking with Iron Man's head. Well, not just uh, mucking with and, Iron Man's and, head, and also but also to, to manipulate... Global politics yeah, as well. Basically, um, they needed a figurehead for like uh, a, terrorist a, a terrorist organization, organization yeah. and they specifically created, mm. like in, like, in-house, mm. like a villain who would key into all of Western xenophobia. So, yeah, so that everything they... about Ben Kingsley's character was some, like... Some caricature of like various terrorist groups or mm. villains throughout history and in it, order it, to, yeah, exploit it, our yeah. our xenophobia and racism. And and it and it read that way. It's like, oh, this is uh, another boring xenophobic stereotype mm. you're putting in Iron Man three. And then there was a twist in the middle. No, we were doing that on purpose. This was a big twist. It turns out he was this actor guy who was actually a drug addict. Who they they said, oh, they. They said, if you did this for them, they get you clean. No, they just gave me more drugs. It was great. <laughs> and Ben Kingsley is great in that movie. And I yeah. like that they had this clever twist with this villain, that the Mandarin, this sort of racist stereotype going way back, is just completely deconstructed and doesn't exist anymore. Shang-Chi exists as a way to appease the people who didn't like that twist. Well, the plot of the movie does. The character obviously precedes that. I'm sorry? The plot of this movie does. Well, the plot you said Shang Chi does not the character. Oh, not the character. Yeah, no, the, just for the sake Shang-Chi, of clarity. The movie, Shang-Chi, for the sake of clarity, the movie. Yeah. Uh, part of this is part of the reason this movie was made. It seems was as an apology to the people who don't like the fact that the Mandarin was erased out of Marvel Comics history. Um, I was fine with that. I thought it was very clever, and I think it's okay to dispense with a, a disposable character like the Mandarin. But no, a lot of people wanted Iron Man to have a nemesis that he had from the comics. Um, the shtick with the Mandarin in the comics is that he wore ten rings, one on each finger, and they were magical, and they granted him immortality and other... Laser beams. Some kind of other magical anti-gravity powers Anti-gravity beams, yeah. and a freeze ray, and a heat ray, and yeah. All right, each ring had like a different thing Each or ring something. had a different power. Oh, yeah, I don't... I don't remember what each of them were, but each ring had a different something power. Something like that. Um, yeah. now we have, uh, Tony Leung as this character who wears the ten rings, uh, rather than wearing them on his fingers, he wears them up his forearm, so he looks really badass. Yeah. And, uh, Which is an image you would find in, like, other martial arts movies, like the opening of, like, 36 Chamber of Shaolin. You'll right. see Gordon Liu. Like, yeah, with the... Rehearsed, with, with, um, with those, yeah. And um, at, at the beginning of the movie, they explain that he found these rings somewhere long ago. We don't know how, they, how he came into possession of these rings, but this character, um, Tony Leung, has now been 
using them to stay alive forever, and also he can, like, extend them off of his arms and throw them through the air, and it gives him, like, superpowers. He can jump around and knock people over. It gives him ring superpowers. Uh, and he's been conquering the world using his ring superpowers uh, in order to... He has heard tale of a magical village that's full of all kinds of cryptids and magical creatures. He has to go through a magical moving maze to get there. And he gets there and finds a guardian at the gate. And he and the guardian fight and they fall in love. And he and she uh, decide to go off together, start their own enclave. Uh, he decides to give up the rings and age out and have some children. He has a boy and a girl. The boy is Shang-Chi. Uh, then she dies, he puts the rings back on and decides to take over the world again, but this yeah. time as a criminal overlord. And now he's secretly been a criminal overlord for the last couple of centuries. His son has been trained to be an assassin, but his son twisted off and, uh, has erased his, uh, his, like, his, his past. past. He's, he has his yeah. violent past and has now moved to San Francisco, where he's best friends with Aquafina yeah. and works as a valet. And quick, he's, and he's goes by the name Sean. Quick, quick, quick question here, because mm. I, because again, I'm sort of curious here. Mm. Uh, that made it sound like Shang-Chi is like over 100 years old. Is that true? Shang-Chi is not. Shang-Chi okay. Shang ages like a human. Okay, so Shang-Chi, Tony, so he had Shang-Chi yeah. not Lee, that long ago. Yeah. Tony, okay, just just to but, be clear, because it sounded like... But Shang-Chi okay. Shang is like in his late 20s or early 30s, and he's yeah. been he was trained all throughout his childhood to be an assassin. Right. But now he's not an assassin anymore. Now he's a valet in San Francisco. Got it. The story gets going when uh, he, he wears a magical necklace, huh. and, uh, and Dad wants it back. So he sends assassins after him, and there's some pretty impressive... Uh, Fight scenes. There's a really cool uh, fight scene between the assassins and Shang Chi on a San Francisco bus while that's in motion. So it's like this really limited space, but they're getting a really good use out of uh, you know, flinging their bodies around. Mm. Uh, and it's then that he reveals to uh, Aquafina what his, what his deal is, where he has come from, and how his dad is this immortal super criminal and. Uh, the story then continues to him having to go back and reconnect with his father and how his father is going to take over that village that he tried to at the beginning and use a magical gate within the village to unleash demons and take over the world. Like you do. Like you do. Um, and he ha and you know, the magic rings are going to help him do that. He has okay. to stand by this big wall and uh, he's going to do so because he believes his dead wife lives on the other side of it. Oh! Yeah. She never writes. Well, she's dead. Oh, <laughs> but he believes he can. So she she's not doesn't live he, on the other side of it. Well, he he thinks he can resurrect her by opening this portal. Ah, but, okay. but in All so right. doing, he'll let out a bunch of demons and also take over the world. Okay. Um, this mean this is the second Tony Leung film I've seen where he stands by a wall, whispering <laughs> his love into it. But uh, in the mood for love, that's is that's, the that's, other that's one. A, yeah, yeah, that's the Wong Kar Wai film. In Tony Leung is an incredibly well respected oh, he, Chinese actor. He, he's going he's back a, a worldwide superstar. He's, yeah. In fact, he's he's such a, a charming superstar. He overshadows Shang Chi. <laughs> like he he actually has like it's been a while since we've had a villain in a movie do that. Yeah, where he has, <laughs> has more to say and a much more interesting motivation. Shang Chi yeah. is just sort of this capable action guy who wants to stop bad things from happening. It's yeah. like, is there more to your character? Okay, you used to be an assassin, but like we don't. Contend, like contend with that a lot. Just he's just mm. oh that was part of my past and it was really dark. And he, his sister, mm. who I mentioned earlier, also resents that he is uh, prefer. He was the preferred assassin, whereas she is a self taught uh, martial artist, mm. and so she resents that he got a little more attention when they were uh, kids and teenagers. Got it. 
Okay. So he has to reconnect with her. There's a scene where they have to, there's a, all this globe trekking. They go all over the world mm-hmm. trying to find where uh, Tony Leung is. Uh, they have to go into a superhero fighting tournament where there's superheroes that fight in little rooms. That's fun. You get some uh, fun uh, Marvel Comics cameos. Wong from the uh, Doctor Strange movies uh-huh. uh, is in that scene, as is a character called the Abomination. Yeah, we saw that in the trailer, from, so that's not a spoiler for uh, anybody. Uh, uh, the Abomination has not been seen since Incredible Hulk. Yeah, it was the Tim yeah. Roth character in the Incredible Hulk. He looks different here. Uh, yeah. He looks more like he does in the comics with like the webbed ears well, like and the, much the, greener. The, the Hulk has changed sort of mm. what he looks like over time. Yeah. Like, yeah, so that makes sense. Um, yeah, so... What, does, but is Wong, does Wong look happy to be there? Because it seems like kind of weird for Wong to be like, yeah, I'm going to go to my underground fighting tournament for the weekend. Excuse me. Yeah, uh, this is just something Wong does. He's at <laughs> underground fighting tournaments. And, and he fight and he fights the abomination and then they leave together. It's like, come on, let's go home. It's like they're, they're no, friends. So they like, do? like he's buddies with the abomination. Oh my God. I love so. that. <laughs> I love that. Okay, Wong he, is one of my, Wong is a character who in the comics, yeah. even in the best comics, wasn't particularly, he, he, he wasn't portrayed with a lot of nuance, he, and he, in the he was, movies, he's like he so fun. He was just like a butler character in the comics, Often, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah in, the, in the worst comics, he was, and in the good ones, mm. not much better mm. than that most of the time. But uh, I love Benedict Wong in these movies. Yeah. He's fun. <laughs> I love that he's he's not, like Doctor Strange is like kind of the Sorcerer Supreme, and Wong's just like, mm. shut up, <laughs> <laughs> you suck at this. Um. This is a supremely silly movie. Okay. Uh, uh, That's not a bad thing necessarily, it, is it? Uh, no, not necessarily. This feels like the way a lot of um, summer blockbusters did, like in the 90s, mm. where there was a lot of just sort of high concept fighting and the plot was maybe a, a tertiary concern at best. There are a lot of things that don't make sense. This They have to go through a moving maze to get to the magic village and... Uh, they have to do so with the help of this like faceless little furry creature that's been living with Ben Kingsley. Oh. And they're in a car oh. and like they zip through and it's like this close call. They barely make it through to the middle. Okay, so it's hard to do. You can't find it very well. Yeah. And then in the next scene, this entire battalion of cars shows up in the magic village. It's like, oh, and they just got there somehow. Well, they're better drivers. Um, I guess so, but there's yeah. like a whole team of them. Yeah. Uh, the, You're the idea, to be the best at everything, you know. The, the idea that Tony Leung had to send a team of assassins to get a magic necklace off, off of his son's neck is a little strange. When he could probably just ask for it. Yeah. Like, why, why do you have to get a fight doesn't... scene and get this guy to like? But you don't want to kill your son. You just well, want to like fight with him for some reason. Maybe, maybe if mm. the assassins get the necklace. Mm. Uh, then he'll never have to know his dad took it, and they can stay on good terms. But he knows immediately that there is his dad. They are his dad's goons. Well, I'm not saying one well, of maybe, them, maybe dad isn't great one at of them everything. Has like you ever a, think a, of that? Has like a lightsaber arm. Like, oh it's, got, it's a sword, but it can cut through, like slice yeah. through cars and shit. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's got like a super lightsaber arm. Mm. It, so it's pretty clear that like some super being has said sent them to get his necklace. Uh, one thing that a lot of people have been saying about Shang-Chi mm. is that the action sequences are among the better of the Marvel movies, or at the very least the fight scenes. Well, it's... Thoughts. The fight scenes, I think it's just because it's usually one-on-one fist fights, and it's not these big CGI things where people are flying through the air and firing blasts at each other. Mm-hmm. So it feels comparatively a little bit more human. Mm-hmm. It's still augmented with CGI there. Sure. Like people are spinning through the air and stuff. So it doesn't mm, have yeah. the same thrill as watching um yes madam with michelle yo perhaps but at the same t- at the same time <laughs> yeah. though you know chinese movies the wuxia genre yeah. they've been doing wire yeah. work and everything they, for many they, many decades now so clearly, that yeah. level of augmentation is part of it it's it's like kung fu and wuxia in, inflected without really kind of reaching the highs of the original mm-hmm. um 
yeah, the, the fights are pretty fun until it turns into a big CGI mess at the end where there's dragons fighting each other and mm-hmm. people jumping from what, the back of one dragon to another and there's clouds in the sky and Cthulhu is there. And I'm going to throw it out there, Whitney, there are usually clouds in the sky. Oh, well, I mean clouds of evil in the sky. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's, you're right, that wasn't maybe the... There's clouds in the sky and there's a sun up there as well and there's water in a lake. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I think you understand what I meant. There's like, I did. It was, it was go, funny. It was clues, funny that you were talking about there's these fucking of, dragons everywhere and there are clouds in the sky for some reason. Plumes of evil shooting up into the sky. That's what I, I should perhaps have said. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I like some of the action. The plot is really, really stupid. Um, I like Tony Leung a lot. Um, where it tries to connect... It, it doesn't try to connect to the Marvel Universe at large in big ways, which I appreciate. Yeah. It's when it does that it feels really, really tiresome. And when it you can see all of the scenes where they're clearly trying to apologize for the whole Mandarin stuff from Iron Man 3. Mm-hmm. That's really eye-rollingly bad. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, Tony Leung has a speech. It's like, oh yeah, remember Iron Man 3 and that guy who said he was the Mandarin? Yeah, that was really me. I, it, that's actually, a real, I'm a really cool character now. Uh, and you can you can say that we have a Mandarin now, but now I'm really cool. And it's and uh, mm-hmm. not a, not based on a stereotype at all, because... Yeah, because we, cha- we changed it a lot of backpedaling. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, so all of the scenes where they're backpedaling and connecting it to other movies, it becomes so tiresome. Uh, yeah. all, all of the fight scene stuff is just fun popcorn entertainment. It's mm. fine. Yeah. It's a fine. It's a fine movie. Okay, uh, well that's that's which, fine. Which isn't is it? which is better than a lot of these uh, Avengers films where they just are aching to connect it to a larger world or sort mm. of contribute to a mythos. I don't care about a mythos i want to have a good story and some fun mm-hmm. characters i want it to be a little more intimate you than want, that yeah you want you want pulp uh, adventure a, a pulp adventure would be great and i feel like they've lost sight of that over co- the course of all of these you know you get to mm-hmm. avengers Endgame. it's like oh there's thousands of characters like great and they're all just sort of flying around shooting blasts at each other and getting magical stones to kill everybody it's like mm, no i don't care yeah yeah, here it's just about a magical necklace and rings. Here it's about yeah, ten magical <laughs> rings, and and of course there's there's stingers at the end that connects it to the you know, there's other cameos mm-hmm. and they connect it to the larger yeah. Marvel universe. Stay as a tuned whole. for Darkhawk the movie. Sadly, it is not not Darkhawk, oh. and I think you would have heard about it if it was Darkhawk. No, sure, sure would have heard about Darkhawk. Look up Darkhawk. Darkhawk yeah. was stupid. Uh, mm. They've done a lot of work trying to like reclaim dark hawk and make him like nova or something like that give it give dark hawk a little bit more uh dignity over dark, the years dark hawk was get this a flying guy in a suit of armor and had a, a cylon helmet mm. like, yeah, well, um, what he had actually was um uh, uh mighty was it mighty man and oh, no, yuck he, oh what he had was um he had was a magic animal that gave him a suit of alien armor. There but go. but when he had the suit of armor on and he took off his helmet, uh-huh. it was so horrifying what was on the other side. Oh right, and he had to put it back on. <laughs> it was and it was like and it yuck, was like yeah. Yuck the dog from the yeah. Mighty Man cartoons. Yeah, who wore um, a little doghouse over his head. Yeah, so and every time he took off the face. helmet, he was the ugliest dog in the world. And he would take off the helmet, and like a, a wall would crumble in front of him yeah. because the wall was like gross. I'm gonna stop <laughs> existing just, now. Such an ugly dog, it can knock over walls. There you go. Or zipper neck in the tick. Oh. Take care of him, Zipperneck. Hey, look at this. Zip. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Shang-Chi. Any last uh, thoughts before we move on? Uh, no, I have little to say about this. Okay. Um, it, it's getting uh, highly praised. All of these movies typically are. Um, yeah. it, it really is a mess of a script. And I'm kind of surprised at how much... 
how much a lot of uh, audiences are willing to forgive when the script is really loose if it belongs to the the series they love. Mm. I feel like there's. It's a, like visiting with old friends. Yeah, it's like, new, oh, yeah. good. This this is a new friend, but it still connects to something really familiar. Yeah. And because the fight scenes actually have a little bit of choreography to them, it seems like so much a step above watching super beings flying around shooting blasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as such, it, it's getting praised for its fight choreography. It has good fight choreography. Well, I'll take that. Um, Watch a kung fu movie from the '80s, and you realize that it's actually pretty subpar. Mm. Um, but, but for yeah, American it's... film, we got we got to give it a sliding scale. For American films, is it better than usual? It's better than usual. Okay, yeah. well, we'll take it. All right, well, let's and move C- on. Simi Liu is good. I love Aquafina, and Tony Leung is a legend. Michelle Yeoh plays a very small part. That's a shame. Yeah. Um, well, let's move on to the other big release of the weekend. Mm. Let's talk about the Amazon debut film Cinderella. A new live-action musical based on the fairy tale uh, with a pretty big cast. We got uh, Camila Cabello as the title character. We got Adina Menzel as the Wicked Stepmother. Uh, Minnie Driver and Pierce Brosnan as the King and the Queen. Some guy named Nicholas Galatzine as the Prince. Billy Porter as the uh, Fairy Godmother. James Corden... He's as, one of the mice. as one of the mice, <laughs> so it's James A. Caster. So at least one of the mice is played by a James who I can get behind. Um, and uh, this was written and directed by Kay Cannon, who had, the, uh, uh, P- uh, Pitch Perfect movies. Yeah, they wrote the Pitch Perfect movies, and they had made their directorial debut mm. with the comedy Blockers, which was really good. Blockers is really quite good. Uh, that's the one yeah. with uh, Leslie Mann and John Cena, yeah. who are overhear that their teenage daughters are going to go to prom and specifically have sex for the first time, and they are so shocked by their plan. Yeah, they're so they overprotective decide, uh, that they decide to try to stop like, it. No, and... you, you can't have sex for the first time. That's irresponsible. And over the course of the evening, it's about how they are so in the wrong. Yeah. And uh, about... The their, parents are the irresponsible ones. The parents ones. are irresponsible, and they're... they're teenage daughters are actually dealing with this in a very responsible fashion and they have a a good deal of like health about their sexual attitudes yeah and it's an incredibly positive movie it has it hits all of the like shocking like the shock comedy beats it's like oh look a man's penis yeah or or, 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 like there's a whole bit where like uh, uh john cena has to like drink beer in like the most disgusting way possible i'm not gonna ruin your day with it but like you get those like big gross gross out movie moments but the actual heart of it's really good and really smart so i've been keeping an eye on k cannon unfortunately k cannon's second film is quite bad oh, it's, oh, this movie is trash this um, movie is really really not good uh, camilla cabello is a uh, pop best known for being a pop star uh, and she has that sort of pop star confidence where she uh, mm. you know every, every step she takes is a strut and uh, she you know, looks completely dazzling in this movie. She's supposed to be Cinderella. Uh-huh. She doesn't even have like a, a like a token, a token smudge little on her smudge cheek. on her cheek. Yeah, yeah she's the reason just she's called Cinderella completely is she's dazzling. Covered in cinders, except no, this version of Cinderella. Usually, Cinderella, mm. uh, the whole idea is uh, her father uh, married a new woman. She brought in her stepsisters, and when the father died or went missing, depending on what version of the story you told. Uh, the uh, stepmother and stepsisters started treating Cinderella incredibly abusively and forced her to sleep like on the ground in front of the fireplace and do all the chores. And it was really quite horrible. This version of Cinderella has an awesome basement apartment, lots of free time to pursue her interests, and is 
totally fine. In fact, half the time we see the stepmother and the stepsisters, they're doing chores. And, and it's <laughs> Which really, is really, huh. It's really bizarre because this takes place in a very modern world and all of the characters yeah. are singing modern, well... Mostly modern pop songs. Modern pop songs from today extending back like 40 years. It's like yeah. this big span of just jukebox hits you've heard it starts yeah. up with uh, Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation mashed up with Desiree's You Gotta Be do you remember Gotta Be? I do how can yeah. I forget You Gotta Be? Yeah, that was a big hit uh, yeah and so it's all this it's very modern everybody has uh, modern colloquialisms mm-hmm. and like as if sort of stuff lots because, of jokes about contemporary stuff yeah contemporary yeah. stuff but yeah. at the same time we still have to fold in like some inherent sexism into like the feudal system that they live in so it's modern, but it's also really backwards at the same time. So yeah. the prince has a sister, but she can't be uh, the, the central ruler because she's a woman. That's a big yeah. plot point of the movie. It's also it's also worth noting that she's his younger sister, so even under normal circumstances, he would still be next in line. Yeah, but she, yeah. she's the one who has political ambition. So yeah, she, there's she believes like, in yeah. things like wind power yeah. and like ways to like... Basically, all like the things that people say now would be a good idea. Yeah. She was like 200 years ahead yeah. of her time. Um, and uh, the... And Cinderella has a dream of becoming, of owning her own dress shop. She's an entrepreneur. Yeah. So this is a movie about the monarchy versus capitalism, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and, but at the same time, she's still in this Jane Austen world where she can only make money or have agency if she marries well. Mm-hmm. So that's still part of the plot. Uh, and I feel like they're just sort of borrowing bits and pieces of stuff to make, just sort of shamble through a Cinderella story then, without giving any kind of thought to what they're doing. None of it feels thought out, which is really frustrating. Like when you, I, I, um, when you make a fantasy story, when you decide to tell a movie that doesn't take place uh, in actual in, history, mm. uh, you have to make a decision uh, about like how you're going to ground it or mm. if you're going to ground it. Uh, but generally speaking, you want to have some idea hmm. of like what you're going to do. I interviewed Colleen Atwood. In fact, we both did it at one yeah, point. Well, but, she was on a podcast of ours. Uh, but the first time I interviewed Colleen Atwood, I interviewed her for The Huntsman. Sorry, uh, Snow White and the Huntsman. Hmm. And Snow White and the Huntsman takes place in a fairy tale universe. But one of the things is, okay, it takes place in a fairy tale universe. You have kind of carte blanche. You can do whatever you wanted. But she still made the point, yeah, but you have to come up with an overarching design aesthetic. You have to know what is appropriate in this universe and what is not so that there can be a sense of consistency. Uh, so she, they would make a choice. Okay, we're going to go with this era of fashion and this look and this color palette. Uh, here, it's all fucking over the place. And that's not just true for fashion, although it is. Uh, but it's true with every single thing about it. Um, how modern is it? How backwards is it? It completely varies mid-scene sometimes. Um but even the music isn't well thought out. And mm. I was watching this, and I was, yeah, watching, yeah, this, yeah. I was watching this with, and, and think it's a jukebox musical. There's like one or two new songs, but the mostly it's pre-existing pop hits that are being inserted into the movie uh, based on whatever the movie requires or what they could get the rights to. Like so, for example, uh, the one of the villain songs, uh, the queen is singing to her daughters. Because, oh, you know, the, in order the, to survive... The wicked stepmother. Yeah, this the wicked stepmother. Yeah. Sorry, the wicked stepmother. Sorry. The wicked stepmother is singing to her daughters uh, that, uh, you know, we we have to marry well to take care of ourselves. Uh, so they sing Material Girl by Madonna. Mm. Uh, they do not 
However, they don't change the song in such a way that it makes sense for the text. They are material girls. However, uh, the, the song is not in any way villainous or ominous or mm. bad. Uh, it's still very poppy and upbeat and positive. The context of the scene is the mom is teaching her daughters that the importance of hard work so that they understand why they have to marry well, mm. which is actually just kind of good parenting. So that, <laughs> that doesn't work either. The song actually makes more sense for Cinderella because not only is she trying to thrive in a materialistic society by starting a business, but also she's a dressmaker. She works with materials. And also no. <laughs> when they're singing, all three of them are singing and uh, and I am a material girl. There are three of you. We are the material girls. You're not even changing the music in the tiniest possible ways to make sense in the context of the film. And probably the worst case scenario of this, actually, and, and I was watching this with my partner, M. Lapis da Silva, uh, and they brought this up. The opening song, R- Rhythm Nation, mm. great song, no one complaining about that, but it's used very specifically to illustrate that this is a conformist society. The rhythm mm. of this rhythm nation is routine. Yeah. Is everyone filling the same roles, no one making any waves. Well, er, and, But as a result, just to finish my point, mm. as a result, what they're saying is that rhythm represents conformity <laughs> and oppression. <laughs> Ergo, literally every single song in this movie, after the first song in the film, mm. is framed as, this is a bad thing. Well, we're we're used you're, you're to making those, it anti-musical. We're used to uh, no. I think it's just because it's used badly. We're used well, of to. Of course, it's uh, used badly. You know, but that point is that's the only mu- interpretation we can. The take type from of it. song that would ordinarily go in that scene. And I mean, let's mm. think of um, uh, the the 1991 version of Beauty and the Beast. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Where uh, there's a song sung by all of the villagers about the main character and how uh-huh. it's, oh, like, yeah. she's and it's about how it's upbeat, but she's yeah. very strange and she's kind of an outsider. Yeah. Moana had one of these as yeah. well about how we all we're all very very happy to live the same life over and yeah, over again. It's like yeah, 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 everything's yeah. sort of good for us, but it's not here's, good for her. Here's and the status then, quo, but there's a problem. So we're used we're used to that that song fulfilling that function at yeah. this point in a musical and in this Cinderella, it's only meant to establish we sing here. <laughs> that's that's all Rhythm Nation is being used for. Right. It's it's actually ordinarily we'd think this is actually meant to represent how ordinary their world is, but it's actually using it to describe how extraordinary their world is. Uh-huh. But we still have a dreamer in the basement who longs mm-hmm. for more, so she's she's got to be. Yeah. So she's singing Desiree. But they uh, they fuck up these giant beats though. Like musicals have beats. They use music to illustrate the mm-hmm. emotional journeys and inner worlds of the characters. But here, the music is so badly chosen or badly written that they don't do that. Like, there's the scene in the movie that everyone knows where uh, Cinderella wants to go to the ball. Uh, there's a ball, and you know the, the prince is going to pick uh, their their His bride, future bride yeah. uh, at this ball, and it could be anyone in the kingdom. Doesn't matter if they're royalty or not. That's that's the gimmick. Uh, I, I appreciate that Cinderella only wants to go to the ball so that she can schmooze. Yeah, she can show off her <laughs> dress and try to get a. Alone, so she can open up her own yeah. business. Fine, but whatever. My point is this: whatever. It's like it's dumb that we've sort of put this musical around, sort of like a capitalist bureaucracy. Well, whatever. She wants to start her own business. I'm not going to begrudge her that. My point is: there's no, the scene. But, uh, there's the scene in which the the stepmother uh, ruins her dress, and she, what she does is, uh, what's weird is that she's actually the stepmother trying to get Cinderella married. Mm. Which is weird because it prevents her own daughters from getting married first, which is kind of the whole point. I'm going to hide Cinderella so that my stepdaughters can get the pick of the litter. Also, 
also, I'm sorry, you would have a dowry, so you're going to have to give up a lot if you if you marry off Cinderella, so that doesn't make any sense. But anyway, the whole thing is, you can't go to the ball, not because you're oppressed, but because we've already betrothed you, and you're not allowed to go. Mm-hmm. And again, the stepmother just doesn't seem that bad, but what she does is, she ruins the dress by spilling ink on it. And when she throws the ink, and this is not a subtle film, when she throws the ink, it's just a little blotch, like right here. Like mm. you can put a ribbon on that and no one ever know. It's not just like splash, you know, <laughs> ruin the dress. Or, like, mm. or in the Disney movie where they like violently tear the dress off of her and mm. it's really horrifying. Like, no, just, it's been, oh, that you put a spot on my dress. Well, that's unfortunate. I'll we'll have to cover can, it up now. I can I cover guess. that up with a scarf or maybe a... Maybe a, 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 a purse or something like that. I could cover that up fine. Okay, let's go. Like, it doesn't really work. But the the issue I was going to bring up is, this is the low point of the movie for her. Like, everything is bad. Mm-hmm. She can't go to the ball. Stepsisters and stepmother are away. Everything is really, really horrible right now. And she sings her hero number about how nothing can stop her. And I'm like, no, the point of the scene is that something has stopped you. If nothing can stop you, Billy Porter would not be about to show up right now to give you a magic dress. Uh, That's not how that works. That's not how narrative works. You're telling the exact opposite of the story you're telling. This uh, this has even less edge than uh, than, than Disney films. Uh, oh, yeah. where we, we've been spending a lot. You'll notice this, especially from Disney, but in a lot of films recently, this this need to take away all of the fear and villainy and wickedness out of these fairy tale stories, mm-hmm. where uh, the villain is now somebody who's very relatable and has yeah. uh, motives that you really understand, or they're just misunderstood. Uh, and you know nobody's in real peril mm-hmm. here. There's like there seems, and as a result, it seems like there's very little at stake. Mm-hmm. That's no truer than it is here. She loses her dress, and it doesn't feel like she's lost anything. No. And then Billy Porter shows up, uh, camping up the the fairy godmother character in drag, which uh-huh. was a, well, it's more of, it's more of a gender queer thing. It's like um, whatever. I, I don't know if drag's the right way to put that, but they're they're oh well yeah, a man in a gown, but uh. Yeah. This was a conce- I was reminded very much of the 1977 porno Cinderella, ah, yes. which uh, had the same thing. Had a, a, a drag queen character as the the fairy godmother. Mm. Um, I know. T- seek out that 1977 film. Um, it, it's it's softcore. I think there's a hardcore mm. cut, but you can find it around online. I think that opened the exact same weekend as Star Wars. Yeah, it didn't make as much money. Not as, Star as Wars. much. No, it was well, a little was, less. A little I think it was number two. It would have been number, number one two, yeah. were it not for Star Wars. Were it not for Star Wars. <laughs> oh, what a world we would have lived in. Uh, in. In that one, she doesn't leave behind a shoe. Okay. She has just... an enchanted body part. Anyway. anyway uh... Uh... <laughs> okay. Look, my point is Cinderella has been done ad infinitum in many, many different ways, sure. and I'm sick to death of it. There's not a novel way to do Cinderella anymore, and this particular version doesn't seem to be even tapping into the basic wish fulfillment fantasy of Cinderella. Well, the thing where is, you have a bad life at the start and a better life at the end. Yeah, your life is. I mean, it's not great, but it's actually not that bad compared it, it, to a lot impro- of other Cinderellas. It, imp- it improves like, a little bit. Yeah, she ha- she gets her dream of starting a small business. Yeah. Like she, she doesn't. Cool. She's not rescued from poverty. Yeah. Well, actually, what she what she gets is uh, she gets a, uh, a freelance gig. <laughs> actually, what That's she right, really yeah. gets at the end is a freelance <laughs> gig. So, like, it's not even that. It's 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 such a. I th- I keep thinking about the Kenneth Branagh version, which mm. I, I know a lot of people are talking about the Brandy version, which I have to admit I haven't seen. But the Kenneth Branagh version of Cinderella, I still think is the high watermark for the Disney remakes because mm. what it did was it went back to the basics. 
It said, hey, instead of like desperately trying to like truss up the original fairy tale, excuse me, to make it hip and now and like, you know, make it like poochy. Um, no, what we're going to do is we're going to go back and just make it work. Mm. We're going to go try to find the original thing and try to find a way to tell that story now where it functions. And I think he did an excellent job. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the, the, the stepmother gets a lot more character in that film. It doesn't make her any less wicked. We just understand why she is the way she is. Mm. And it's a really, she, really great performance from Kate Blanchett. Uh, I, I I even appreciated the prince in that yeah. one. The prince uh, actually... Usually very underwritten character. Yeah, actually has, like, things to do and say and, like, interests outside of the castle. I yeah. know... Uh, the prince in this movie sucks. He really... He's... Not interesting. Of he's boring, not fun. I don't boring, want him to studly guy. He, when we introduced him, he's just this sort of, like, shallow party boy. He's like, oh, I just want to laze around and do nothing because I'm a prince. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the king and queen, played by Pierce Brosnan and Minnie Driver, uh, say, no, no, you're going to have to marry off at some point and do, like, kingly stuff, and then you'll get to be the king. And... Uh, Pierce Brosnan and Minnie Driver have their own baggage. He's like, nah, I'm just sort of a shiftless layabout. But then he sings Queen's Somebody to Love, uh-huh. saying, uh, revealing that he actually does have this great dream of finding, of falling in love and finding somebody. Uh-huh. Uh, this is the second Cinderella film to use Somebody to Love in an anachronistic context, because that was also used in Ella Enchanted. Oh, yeah. So if, even the dumb anachronistic ideas are taken from other movies. <laughs> This film has nothing in its head. I did appreciate the one, the one song that was uh, like reused here that was actually like okay, that's actually cute, and they did choreography and it looks pretty good. Was when he gets to the ball, mm. uh, all of the women at the ball do a performance of "What, what a, a Man, man yeah. by Salt and Pepper, and in uh, Vogue featuring Salt and Pepper. I apologize, or is it Salt and Pepper featuring in Vogue? It's both of them. It is both. It is both of them. Not <laughs> it crazy. Is both of them, yeah. Okay. But uh, in any case, I'm going to double check because yeah. I want to make sure I get this right. Like who, who the, the actual yeah. credited? Uh, it was Salt and Pepper with Envogue. With Envogue, okay. Okay, so I was a little, I was fine. I was not, I wasn't giving Envogue enough credit. I apologize. Envogue does kick ass. Either way, so does Salt and Pepper. Either way, it's great. I, I love it that song. Great I love song. Salt and Pepper. I love Envogue. They do this funny, you know, they do a lot of choreography, and he's a little overwhelmed by it, and that's kind of funny. Uh, but the thing is, is that the best part is that there's this one cellist. In uh, the band, mm. who is gets like a b- major cello solo, and she shreds it, mm. and then she breaks the cello, and then she reaches out, and they hand her another cello, <laughs> and I'm just like, wouldn't it be great if that's who he married? Who's this, <laughs> this is the awesome cellist. cellist? He's a fucking badass. He's like more personality than anyone else in the movie. If that one little mm. bit <laughs> would have been awesome. Uh, I want to talk about. Okay, let me, let me rephrase. I don't mm. want to talk about, but I feel like it's necessary mm. to talk about the mice. The um, the talking mice as helpers goes back to the 1950 Cinderella, mm-hmm. the animated film, yeah. and um, those are anthropomorphic mice that actually yeah. like speak human words and, and wear, wear clothes, clothes and, and, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and actually end up remaking uh, Cinderella's dress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they uh, and they're turned into footmen mm-hmm. in order, and the coach driver if you were to get to the ball. And uh, here we 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 got the mice. And, oh boy! And they do, and they talk. And they talk, although it's a little but confusing because they Cinderella talks to them, mm. and then we hear the mice talk, and for a long time, I thought she could hear them talk, but then it turns out later in the movie, they clarify that, no, she can't understand them when they talk. Mm. Only the audience could. And that's just bad storytelling. 
Because I really, really thought she could talk to the mice, and it turns out she couldn't. And we don't realize that, confirm that, until later in the movie. Yeah, it's really I've, weird. I've seen that before, but usually that's in movies about talking animals. Yeah. Like Secret Life of Pets, the yeah. animals can hear, understand each other, but the humans can't. But uh, that's those are all animal characters. Yeah. Uh, the mice are voiced by uh, James Corden. Hmm. Uh, James A. Caster, who's a stand-up comedian I'm really fond of. Okay. Uh, very, very funny guy. And uh, someone I'm less familiar with, uh, Ramesh Ranganathan. Hmm. Uh when they turn into... By the way, the CGI on the mice is terrible. And there's at least one <laughs> shot where the James Corden mouse isn't just, like, animated, like, casual or idle. He just stops moving for the last second of the shot. It just, they just, he's just <laughs> sure. sitting there, like, all, like, super um, weird and flat. Are, um, are there are there good movies to feature CGI mice? I guess Brenna's... Yeah, Stuart Little is fine. Stone Stuart Little. Stuart Little's a cute movie. Nothing against Stuart Little. Um... So trying to think. Like a, well, Ratatouille, I guess, is an animated movie, but it is CGI. Uh, yeah, um, I'm trying to think about some more CGI mouse. Um, Something I, of, I guess no, the witches with stop motion. I was, and, I was thinking of like, like yeah. the, the witches and Peter Rabbit and mm. all, all these movies about CGI rodents that are just unappealing. Yeah, I didn't see that. What's that? Was a Despero? I never saw Despero. Oh, the yeah, the tale of Despero. I didn't see that, so I don't know. Yeah, nor, um, nor did I. But in any case, when they become human. Uh, unfortunately, we start really having to spend time with James Corden. Uh, <laughs> James Corden is an actor we who need to I talk can, about James Corden. I don't hate James Corden and everything James Corden has ever done. Hmm. What I hate is, is when they just ask James Corden to be James Corden. When they when he's playing against type, like when he's like the cool cop in Ocean's Eight, he's actually quite good in that movie. But when he's or, o- Ocean's Twelve. Or, no, or Ocean's Eight. Eight. You're right. It's Ocean's Eight. Right. Um, he's actually quite good in that movie. He's playing against type. When he's playing into type, there's something weird. It's just something happens where it's like he's just trying way too hard. Um, and, he has and, a scene. And, yeah, and he, yes, we we did see that meme that was traveling around. Yeah, that's more. It's a shtick on his show where he'll stop traffic and do like impromptu musical numbers for traffic. Yeah. And, uh, in order to promote this film, he, Billy Porter, Camila Cabello, all went out into the street and they all sang. I, I forgot what song it was. Uh, I didn't see but, the actual, but, but I he, only saw the gifts. Dressed, he, I didn't see the yeah, video. Yeah, he was dressed in a mouse suit, yeah. and yeah, everybody's like, oh God, can I can I please just drive past you? Can I please yeah. drive over you? Go away! Yeah, there's a scene in this movie, there's a couple of cute bits where the mice are sort of like fascinated by this brief moment of being human. It's like, mm. we can clap now! Yeah, This is weird. a thing we can do with our hands! James Corden did have a, a funny bit where he's turned into a human and he immediately falls over because he's not used to not having a tail for balance. That's almost that's a joke. A, that's, that's a cute bit. The, the bit that I didn't need was the bit where they talk about how humans go to the bathroom for a while. Hmm. Why was that important to you, movie? William, poop is funny. No, it wasn't even poop. I have a, we have a, talk, we I have have a six-year-old. Have a, poop, we poop to have is a, very funny. Poop would, have been f- poop would have been funnier. Instead, we had a conversation about what James Corden refers to as his front tail. Oh, God. It's not cool. However, there M- is... A f- mice have penises. I know! <laughs> Where do you think we get this from? And the only like funny bit in that whole bit is when uh, James Acaster is talking to a horse and he's not sure if the horse can understand him or not. Because mm. he's not sure what the rules are about talking animals anymore. That bit's kind of funny. Everything else in it. This movie is... Um... It's awful? You can There's, just say awful. I, I think we need to put an end to uh, musicals... Uh, which conclude, mm-hmm. or at least feature in like heavily in the climax, a musical performance by Pierce Brosnan. Um, <laughs> I love Pierce Brosnan. I think he's a very uh, charming, funny actor. I've never heard anything really bad about Pierce Brosnan. If I have, I apologize. Uh, 
I grew up watching Remington Steele. I thought he was, I think he's, even though his movies are a mixed bag, I think he was a really good James Bond. He's a very charming actor. He's funny. He, he's doing the best he can with this material. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sitting here the whole time hoping to God he doesn't sing. Because when he tries to sing in Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia, I'm going to throw it out there. The sequel to Mamma Mia, quite good. Mamma Mia, the original, not so much. And Pierce Brosnan is easily the worst part of that movie because he cannot sing at all. And so even though the joke in this movie is that he can't sing, they still force us to sit through it. It's still like, no, it would be funny if you stopped him. He sings a love song to to Minnie Driver. Minnie Driver can sing. She's got records. And she Uh, doesn't get her whole number to herself, which sucks. No, but, but Pierce Brosnan does. And yes, they do joke about the fact that he can't sing. But we and still have to sit through they, it. They, if you're going to do that joke, have him sing an ABBA song. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Yeah. Why not? Make, make, make a joke out of it. Why not? Mm. Um, Cinderella is not a good film. No. It's a damn shame because no. I like almost everyone in it. Oh. Uh, I like the director and writer. Um, it's certainly not like, you know, oh, you can't do that to Cinderella. Cinderella's fine. Cinderella, you, you can do anything you want to Cinderella. We got Cinderella's all the damn yeah. time. I, I think, just wanted a better one than this, please. I feel like uh, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, definitely Peter Pan. We need to, mm. like, just retire these characters mm. for a good 50 years. I'd throw Batman in there as well. I think, I think if you can, oh, I don't want, maybe. Just wait, wait. I don't think, I think 50 is too much. I think you can do one. Mm. I think you can try again every like twenty years. Twenty years. Again. I think twenty years is good because like think about like how long it's been since we've had like a straightforward adaptation of Dracula. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind like a straight up adaptation of Dracula right now. It's been a while. It's a classic. You can do one. It doesn't have to be cute or clever. Or Dracula two thousand or whatever. You can just do a Dracula mm-hmm. right now. Guillermo del Toro does Dracula. Sure, surely. Cool. Like I want to see that. And I feel like that, like that is also for fairy tales. The problem is that they tend to be overdone because they're in public domain. Yeah. So they're everywhere and they're constant, well, and it's, you don't get a chance to like take a breather from them. Uh, although I really would like to after the Cinderella. I'm I'm wondering what was the last straight up Dracula movie I've seen? Not probably Bram Stoker's. No, 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 because I've seen like Dracula Untold's in the, the, a couple of years. I'm, ago. Talking, I'm talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola movie. But she's like about twenty five years old now. Yeah, I think that was the last. I mean, it was it was kooky well, in its way, but it was still a straight up Dracula movie. Dracula films are incredibly common, and yes. you know, they they sneak in and like low budget off to the side all the time. Right. So yeah, I'm trying to think of like what was the was last? There, was there another straight up Dracula movie that took it seriously mm-hmm. that wasn't like? And I'm not talking about TV. I know they've done a few miniseries or whatever. Because I saw one with Dan Stevens. Uh, um, I didn't. As yeah, it was it was just called Dracula. It was in two thousand six, but he didn't oh. play Dracula. Oh well, oh. he played Lucy's husband. Oh, or Lucy's they did betrothed. not know they, you did that wrong. He's Dracula. Uh, yeah, and uh, an actor named Mark Warren played Dracula in that version. But the idea was this like minor character. It's sort of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern.ing It he was manipulating all these events so he could get Dracula to Whitby Harbor, and mm. he was the one who sent Renfield, and he was the one who sent uh, uh, Jonathan. Harker and yeah. Rafe Spall plays Jonathan Harker in that version. Hmm. Um, so that was like kind of a spin on Dracula, but that's a, the straight yeah. up Dracula story. No, we've had like a lot of, was uh, was Dario Argento's <clears throat> Dracula straight up Dracula? I don't think I actually ever saw that all the way through. I think it was. Okay, maybe that was the last, no, like when, Dracula 3D was that one. That was like 2013 or something, yeah. somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're making another Nosferatu. Um, Which is kind of Dracula. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll see. Um, but in any case, let's move on. Let's talk about a new film that is debuting on Netflix, or rather, already has. 
Uh, and it's a very timely film. We're approaching uh, the uh, 20 year, I hesitate to say anniversary because it sounds celebratory, but um, it's been 20 years since uh, the tragedy of 9-11. And uh, there's a new film uh, starring Michael Keaton, mm -hmm. which approaches the 9-11 story from a different angle. I'll give it that. I haven't seen this angle before. Uh, and it is, I want to make sure I get it uh, right. Is it the 9-11 Victims the Compensation Fund? The 9-11 Victims Fund is what it was called. Yeah. Uh, September 11th Victim Compensation Fund, or the VCF. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so this is a story about a real-life lawyer, Kenneth Feinberg, mm. who, after, you know, 9-11 happened and, uh, you know, the whole world was thrown into disarray, uh, the U.S. government was afraid that all of the families of people who died in 9-11, whether on the planes or in the World Trade Center, at the Pentagon, or, or where have you, um, would come together and sue the shit out of the airlines, mm -hmm. thus bankrupting the airlines, and thus basically grounding the country, which would then destabilize the country, and especially the economy, and they even basically say the words, and if they do that, then the terrorists have won. Yeah. So the there in all these shadowy rooms in Washington, we see these politicians saying we need to basically find a way to pay out through the government mm. all of these people who had family members or next of kin or loved ones who died uh, in 9-11. And uh, we need to do that as quickly as we can. Before they get together and file a class action lawsuit. So Michael Keaton is basically been put in charge of you need to get at least 80% of the families mm. of the of the people who died in 9-11 to agree to whatever payout you decide. And that's on you mm. so that we have plausible deniability in case you're an asshole about it. Yeah. So he comes up with, with his uh, legal partner played by Amy Ryan, basically an algorithm mm. that says here's how much your spouse or, or brother or whoever your next of kin would have made in their yeah. life and uh, we'll pay you that and yeah. there's like a baseline no one gets less than 200,000 no matter what uh, and there's a, like a lot of poor people who are just yeah. like wow that's amazing but the rich people are like we would have made millions we were like stockbrokers in Wall yeah, Street yeah. so a lot of people are really unhappy with it and on top of it all uh, there's a man played by Stanley Tucci uh, whose wife died uh, in the attacks, uh, who thinks the entire system is completely fucked up and yeah. isn't taking into account everyone's individual issues and is he's actually basically forcing everyone, or not forcing, he's uh, uh, organizing everybody to understand that they deserve better than this. Mm -hmm. And uh, so will well, the, uh, Michael Keaton find his heart is the movie, basically. Uh, Michael Keaton is a bureaucrat and his opening speech is with a bunch of law students about how it's actually incredibly common practice. And this is something that I think we all kind of inherently understand about the modern yeah. capitalist system. It's not a fun, it's not it's, a fun conversation, no, but it's, it's important legal conversation. Legal conversation. If somebody dies, uh, you get to put essentially a dollar value on their life. Yeah. If a someone, person if, is worth something. If someone, especially if someone <clears throat> dies in like a wrongful death, like, you know, they, yeah. the, I think the uh, example they use in the movie is like, let's say you're, your father dies on a sorghum farm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you, you die on a farm and you die because of a faulty combine harvester mm. or something and you sue the harv the combine harvester company, how much is a reasonable amount for mm. them to give you in exchange for what they have taken from you? And there is a number. Yeah. 
There and, has and, to be. And he says yeah. there has to be a number. This is this is not a philosophy class. This is part of the legal system. Yeah. Everybody's worth a number. This is a, also a speech that goes back to Fight Club because mm-hmm. that's what the Edward Norton character does in that movie. He yeah. does risk assessment yeah. <clears throat> and figures out that if we are sued for as much as we could, they could possibly get from us, is that less more would... or less than it would take to actually make an improvement? Yeah. So they're actually and if not... it's less, they're not going to bother. Yeah, they're not going to bother. Somebody could still die, they could sue us, they'll pay out, and they still have saved money in that equation. Yeah, it's a fucked so up system. It's, it's a really fucked up system. It's like, it's like the death industry. Somebody dies, yeah. you're going to have to pay for a lot of stuff and take yeah. care of the body and inter people and, and you know... There's a lot to take care of when somebody dies. Yeah. And uh, so I'm frustrated by this movie because it's being presented as if the Michael Keaton character doesn't have a heart and he's not listening to people. And he is very much trying to say, this is actually just part of the system. We're trying to get this done as efficiently as possible. Whereas all of the victims are staging him as this like heartless monster Mm -hmm. because he's not listening to their stories. Right. Now there are some, uh, actual legal problems with a lot of this. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the, uh, one of them, uh, was about to be married to his husband. Or, or a man who would have been, a man who would, would have yeah. been his husband. Yeah. And, uh, they can't pay out his fiance because, uh, he is a Virginia resident and in Virginia, gay marriage was still illegal at the time. Yeah. So they don't recognize him as a fiance as such. They don't recognize him as beneficiary. And that's kind of fucked up. And as a result, the money would go to his parents who didn't approve of his lifestyle. Yeah. So so that's fucked up. So there's, there's an exception you have to make. And he's a little resistant because he was so comfortable with the algorithm he came up with. Like, no, no, we can't make any exceptions whatsoever. And everyone's like, listen, it's not like there's like one person we have to deal with. There's literally thousands upon thousands of people and they all have unique situations and like, there's another good example where someone who the person who died uh, was a father, hmm. and but their wife is also dying of cancer. So when he died, he didn't just the, the kids are extra screwed, hmm. and surely in that situation, more money of a payout would make more sense. Yeah. And Michael Keane's like, no, the algorithm, meh. and but, uh, but he doesn't go. Meh. He's, I, just, he's just a little slow to act. That's it, all. Well, but he ends up doing it anyway. Well, that's my point. He's yeah. really slow to act, and then eventually he realizes. Finally, Stanley Tucci pokes him and says, "Hey, you know, like literally, you can do whatever you want. Uh-huh. You're the one deciding the algorithm." is yeah. like, like cannot be changed. Why don't you just look at everybody like an individual case scenario and work from there? And I think it's like, oh yeah. But he very rightly says, well, there's too many to do that, but there are a few cases. So come to me at my office, yeah. make, make your case and I'll, you know, if there's make an, an exception, exception for exception. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's about how, if you're trapped in this big bureaucracy, you get a meeting with a lawyer within a two year span yeah. and you get the payout anyway. It's just not an exciting drama. It's not an exciting point. drama, and like there's this weird thing where it's like at the end, by the end of the movie, it's like oh. will because at the towards the end of the deadline, most people still haven't signed up, and like will we? And there's a two year deadline. It's a two year. Yeah. It's a long deadline. But they make the they make a point and they make a fair point, which is like this isn't like at the end of some long years long legal battle. All of these wounds are really fresh. Yeah, no one is in the mood to have this conversation rationally right now. Mm. Even ignoring everything else that's going on, also America was just attacked in the most spectacular, mm. and I'd say that in a non qualitative way, but just a gigantic way since Pearl Harbor. Like it's a lot going on right now, and no one's really thinking super clearly. So I get that. And I think the movie's at its best when it's dealing with those kinds of difficult moments. Um, For me, the problem with the movie is that they want to have this kind of like, 
oh good, everyone sort of accepted the money, everyone accepted the payout, but we saw at the beginning in these shadowy rooms with these clearly like n corupt may or may not be the right word, but certainly they people look who kind are, of villainous. They, they look villainous else. and they're portrayed as we're setting up this fund, not because we care about these people, but because we care about these corporations mm. and we don't want them to be hurt, even though, frankly, maybe a lawsuit is in order here. Like they don't really deal with that. They don't so, deal with the fact that a lawsuit might be in order, but yeah. they also do point out that if all of these families sued all of these companies for as as much as they feel they deserve, it would literally crash the world economy. Well, and that's There's like and so then, much money would be lost in these legal suits that, that you know, we're, we're in such a, a big litigious snarl. In and that country. may or may not be true. Uh, and we'll never know because it never happened. But they said it numerous times they, in very frank ways. That's what so they that's, say. In the universe of this film, it's true. That's what they say, which makes it this sort of thing where it's like, but even then... When you look at that, okay, well, that's the stakes right now. Then if that's the biggest concern is that we could crash the global economy, if these ungrateful 9-11 victim families don't get their shit together and accept this payout... Mm. Do you see, well, just the, the premise well, isn't just, very clean it's here. Not very it's clean. It, that, I'm not, well, and I'm it, not really sure who the villain is because Stanley yeah. Tucci comes across as this villain, but he also he's it's incredibly reasonable. He's reasonable, he's but, incredibly reasonable. Well, but so is Michael Keaton. He he yeah. has to deal with all this bureaucrat bureaucratic crap, which he's doing for free and is yeah. trying to do uh, because he understands this is the the legal the right legal thing to do here, and yeah. everybody agrees with him. Yeah. So. And and so what what is being gained here with all of these meetings with the nine eleven victims telling their stories? I understand that you know things are very raw and they want to tell their stories and they want to make sure they're heard. But he says the Michael Keaton character says through numerous times, "We are not the therapists here. Mm -hmm. We're the lawyers. We're on the numbers side of this." Mm -hmm. You know listening to the stories isn't our job. We need to hook them up with people who are going to listen so their voices are heard. Put them in front of a camera. Let them, you know, write their stories. Let them let them be heard in a different way. Not through our office. We're the payout guys. Yeah. This, no, is, this is the bureaucratic end of things. And I agree. So, uh, I'm with you. I think this movie is just a real big muddle. And think... everybody says, you know, you can't put a value on human life. But you know what? I calculated it out. They actually say how much they paid out to that victim's fund, yeah. to the number of people they did. And it turns out a human life is worth about 1.2 million, according to this victim's fund, yeah. which is less than they said in the opening example of the movie. <laughs> in, so, in that, in that sorghum, farm, number, yeah, sorghum farm example, he yeah. said, uh, okay, how much is a human life worth? And somebody just throws out $2 million. Yeah. And then somebody says, okay, that's a pretty good. And then they get, get a little, 2.7, 2.7 million. That's how much my son would be worth. Yeah. And, the, and you know, I've, all the students have a laugh because it's all hypothetical. But I, I feel like this movie is trying to make this come... Because I think the most interesting thing in this movie hmm. is this really difficult intellectual debate about something that is hard to intellectualize. Yeah. And it's something that is a, is human tragedy, which you want to give a voice tragedy to. And, trauma, and you want to give yeah. a voice to that. And I think one of the reasons why we they have all those scenes is because... And the way they justify it is by saying that like these people who are suffering right now... Mm. want to be heard by you and if you ignore their stories whether or not they have any impact on the amount they get paid mm. they're not going to be interested in talking to you because this is all they're interested in right now is their pain yeah so they're dealing with that but the problem is the movie tries to have this this capra-esque finale you know this sort of mm. like haha we did it kind of thing and it's not really yeah. about that but it's about a complicated difficult legal question yeah, they, they didn't like, break through the bureaucracy the system was actually just ended up functioning the way it was supposed to yeah 
So like and it really doesn't come across as like this big inspirational story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come across like this like really complicated. Like this movie I think about uh, I think handles something kind of like this. Mm-hmm. Not the same thing, but uh, I think the tone is is probably more where this would have been. The movie Margin Call. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Great great movie, movie by JC yeah. Chander. Kevin Spacey is in it. I'm sorry about that. But other than that, um but it's about a uh, uh an investment firm that finds out the economy is about to crash the night before. Mm. And they spend like 12 hours trying to figure out, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Do we save the company? Do we warn people? Or do, do we, we do the do right thing do. for our investors? Do we do the right thing for us? Do we find some kind of common ground here? Do we, do we cash out and run? Yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's the, all of these things are there's a lot Because there's a lot of things that are going on at the same time. There's a lot of different needs that they have a responsibility to serve, and they can't serve all of them. And it is about, and they come to a shitty conclusion if you ask me, but I believe it, so it's a good mm-hmm. movie. But like, they they have to have these really difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. Those are interesting conversations. Yeah, that's the conversation that I like to see. It's trying to solve this really difficult problem is exciting to watch, even though there's a lot going on. It's very it's very melancholic, so. but yeah, I just don't think it works as a drama because the the stakes are all muddled and it's hard to say what you even want to happen here. And yeah, what you know, what to, I I love Michael Keaton's performance. He's I think good. he's he, he plays this pencil pusher character with a good deal of heart. I think he actually uh, captures something mm. very human in this character. Stanley Tucci, I think, is overplaying it a little bit. I yeah. think he, he comes across as a little bit too cartoony. Mm-hmm. And Stanley Tucci's great. I know he knows exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I really liked uh, the, uh, Shunori Ramanathan, mm-hmm. uh, who plays... Oh, she was uh, one of the aides. Yeah, and her, her whole thing was uh, she was supposed to start work at a legal firm that was in the World Trade Center. Mm. Uh, and now she's working for Kevin Spacey because she, she didn't go on her first day. <laughs> and it's like, and she's oh, going through that, a lot. She's like a small character. Michael Keaton, you say Kevin Spacey. I apologize. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Huge difference. Yeah. Uh, I still think of margin call. I yeah. still think of margin call. But like, no, but like she's giving, she's a smaller role, but she's given a lot of meaty mm. moments in that role. Yeah. I think she really stands out a lot. I want to give her some credit here. But yeah, they're 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 trying to sandwich in melodrama into something that is actually a I think a really interesting uh, conversation. What is the mm. mundane end of death? Yeah, uh, especially a mass death like the tragedy of nine eleven. Yeah, what what kind of what kind of paperwork needed to be filled out after that? It's this yeah. big, huge. It's not just a mess of our of our hearts and our human lives, but mm. there's going to be something that we're on the ground needing yeah. to take care of, and that kind of mundane stuff is actually very interesting to me. Yeah, because it's kind of the st- the there's stuff human, we don't tend to think about. There's a human drama there too, because and we yeah. have all these moments where like all these people whose job is to be at least as objective as possible and mm. just do the job. After all of the shit that they're doing, it's like. God, this is an inhuman task that I'm doing, mm. and you just see the wear on them. Like you know, I have yeah. to, this has to be done, but Jesus Christ, I feel like a monster, you know. And that's mm. that's that's part of it. And uh, unfortunately, that is the job, and that's something that needs to happen. And I wish it had focused more on that, on actually the like the minutia of what was going on. Yeah, that's he keeps that's talking the part of the movie. He keeps talking about the algorithm, but we never really learn what it is, like how no. he has decided to pay these people out at first. Yeah. That would have been interesting to know how he came to those conclusions. Yeah, they, they how, try. How, how they try to tried, give you the gist. They try to go into it more. I want more detail. You want more. I, I, I want more like minutia. It's not, it's not like it's not talked about at all, but you want more, yeah. Yeah, and and if uh, if we actually, if this was a story from The Office and they were just sort of frustrated about how they kept getting calls from these people who were uh, 
outraged that they're trying to put numbers on human lives and they're just fielding these calls by phone and we just saw life in mm. the firm. I think that would have been a much more interesting drama. That's because, an Oscar winning short film. It, there you go. It, it would have been fun just film. talking to the victims over the phone. We don't even get to hear them mm-hmm. and we get to see how they have to keep on pushing forward in this completely mundane kind of heartless thing that is completely necessary mm-hmm. in order to keep moving this, this story forward and to get these people mm. uh, compensation. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the uh, other dr- other dramas about the the nine eleven nine eleven victims compensation fund was uh, it didn't in, at first it didn't include the people who uh, helped out at the crash site afterwards. Oh yeah, it was only people who had immediately immediately like uh, but like there were a lot died of people that morning, but the people who were uh, luckily were exposed the, to chemicals yeah. or yeah, anything so like they, that. They got they, really really sick, or they inhaled a lot of yeah, dust. They all were of immediately that, covered yeah. by it. Yeah, and that's they even a lot say it, yeah. that that they're not covered. Oh wait, maybe we should cover that. I know um, John Stewart made it a big uh, a oh, yeah. big cause of his to make sure that people who were harmed by 9-11 did get some compensation. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, ultimately, I think $7 billion were paid out to the victims of yeah. 9-11. Yeah. Whew. Uh, anyway, but, tough conversations. Uh, tough conversations, but this is about how they came to that number. Yeah. $7 billion. That was the number. Yeah. They didn't, it didn't it's a be, math problem. It, it didn't stay anything abstract. It's still the math problem. Yeah. The it's, bureaucracy just played itself out and that yeah. is not an exciting story and especially not when you try to sprinkle it with melodrama that doesn't really fit that that structure yeah, yeah. so uh, a mixed bag unfortunately mixed bag. It's, it's not horrible but it does it doesn't really work yeah. um and then lastly a movie i didn't see mm-hmm. this new horror movie on shutter uh called super host super yeah super host uh, a new shutter film uh this is uh the second film i've seen in recent years the other one being the rental that taps into a, a, a fear that you have of your B and B owner. This idea that, uh, and, and I think this is all technology based. There's this fear that's arisen. Uh, what, what with our use uh, of our phones and our laptops, we have become kind of autonomous consumers. And that is, we can now order dinner via app. We don't have to call somebody and talk to another human anymore. Uh, we trust the app more. We don't have to call and talk to anybody when we're booking a hotel anymore. We can just do it on an app. There's no human interaction anymore because... Uh, and what comes with that is kind of a mistrust of the human element. Mm. If you call into a restaurant, you call into a hotel, they might mess something up. The app is clean. Mm. As such, now I, we have two films, this uh, this one and The Rental, about how if you go get a B&B, you don't ever want to talk to the person who's renting the house to you. They are creepy spies who have planted cameras all over that house, and they definitely want you dead for some reason. I'm going to throw it out there. This clearly has antecedents in, uh, or is that what I'm looking for? Antecedents where they lead the antecedents. Antecedents. Uh, Psycho. Any Mm. motel movie where there's a creepy person who owns the motel. That's that's a thing. (laughs) But specifically B and Bs and spy cameras. Like this is all very very new and is tapping into something Mm. very specific. Uh, In this one, Superhost refers to uh, the vlog that the two main characters run. Uh, The two main characters are uh, Claire and Teddy. They're played by uh, Sarah Canning and Osric Chow, and they're uh, the typical kind of bloggers. That is over caffeinated and always upbeat, and they're gonna Mm. stay in B and Bs and review them. And their biggest hit show to date has been where they uh, had an off-screen uh, confrontation with a previous B&B owner. And she'll end up showing up, and she's played by Barbara Crampton. 
I love Barbara Crampton. She mm. uh, see Jacob's wife. I think that's on Shutter this week. Um, um, it, it, it just, it's, it's there now. It's just on Shutter bit, yeah. this week. Um, but yeah, Barbara Crampton and Larry Fessenden play a married couple. He's a preacher, and she becomes a vampire. Mm. Uh, what what does the marriage look like between a, a, a preacher and a vampire? Uh, but they get there, and the uh, B&B owner is played by an actress named Gracie Gillum. She's really, really great. She's clearly a little off, and she has indeed planted spy cameras all over the camera and is also listening to them and can talk to them occasionally. So they're kind of having surreptitious conversations, and the renter will burst in with her own uh, her own interjections. Meanwhile, the, the relationship between the two hosts is very strained. Uh, Teddy actually plans on proposing to Claire, and Claire is just upset because uh, of some controversial things. They've been bleeding subscribers and their YouTube channel has been demonetized. Um, that's, uh, that's you know, big drama for the people who do this for a living. Yeah. If, if your thing is demonetized. I yeah, know, yeah. Uh, I've heard a, a lot of horror stories from uh, professional YouTubers who are able to get a lot of money from YouTube about, like, if they make a, a reference to smoking weed, that's evidently mm. not permitted by the YouTube algorithm, and, and your entire ch- channel can be banned through like one reference like that. And they can change, they can change <clears throat> the rules on you, like oh, from from here on out, this is not allowed. But then they'll go back in videos you did many years ago and still demonetize, and demonetize your whole channel based on that. Mm. And I know people who've gotten screwed over by that. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's not a great system, and there's not a lot of oversight, and there's not mm. a lot of way for you to challenge it. Mm. Um, it's not good. Honestly, it's, it's but not, a lot of people don't anything it's better. It's not a know? good system. Yeah. If it's, some, it's one of those things where it's meant to be, uh, it's part of the gig economy. It's meant yeah. to be something on the side. It's not meant to be your main source of income, but mm. a lot of people have made it their main source of income. Yeah, because every other because, part of the economy sucks yeah, because it's, can't do anything You can't else. hustle 24 hours a day at all these gigs and actually make a decent living. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that that's the, the type of characters we're dealing with. They're, uh, she's really stressed out because they've been demonetized. He's really stressed out because he's looking for the perfect moment to propose. <laughs> And meanwhile, there's this creepy renter who is stalking them. Barbara Crampton shows up and starts throwing rocks through the window. Uh, and everything ends in bloodshed. Uh, it turns out at least one of those characters, guess which one, is uh, quite a bigger psychopath than you might have initially thought. Mm. than they're, you know, murderers. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, Gracie Gillum is really, really good as the the creepy hostess. She actually has a lot of online, uh, online, on-screen presence. (laughs) She has a big online presence. She has a a lot of on-screen presence. She uh, plays this sort of uh, slightly unhinged character incredibly well. I'd like to see her in more horror movies where she gets to play kind of crazy killer characters. Uh, Otherwise, though, it's tapping into a fear I don't have. Mm. Uh, So I'm not really... uh, on the same wavelength as a film like this. The fear of the person who's renting your B&B to you mm-hmm. is not something I've ever really been afraid of. I yeah, under- well, some people use those things a lot, and it mm-hmm. might actually be more relevant. But for those yeah, of but, us who don't, mm-hmm. oh. But yeah, how, how is this different from uh, just a regular hotel? And I know that, understand there are a lot of uh, horror movies set at hotels and motels. Psycho, you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, but this is dealing with something that I think is a very real paranoia. It's like a fear of people that we've had uh, that I think is tapping into something very, very modern, very, very yeah. recent, very contemporary. Yeah. This this fear of other human beings we have that has been brought about by our uh, this sort of 
myth of the ease of technology, that everything is something we can do by ourselves. We've set up all these systems that we can kind of essentially vend whatever we want. We have cars in vending machines. We have hotel rooms in, in vending machines. And when you have to deal with an actual person, clearly they're a psychopath. I mean, people have to do that, though. <laughs> There's actually people out there who are making this stuff work. It's not all autonomous. It's trying to sever the human connection from things that previously had a lot of human connections. And as such, there's this very real fear that people have of the place where they're staying, of a and b mm-hmm. And uh, thanks, but, to, thanks to Airbnb, people have been doing this to their own homes, so those places have a lot of history to them that aren't mm-hmm. part of, like, a vetted hotel process. But that's also, but again, that's also, and again, I'm not, I haven't seen the movie, I'm not defending mm-hmm. or decrying, and I'm just talking about this in general. Um, but that's also, like, any haunted house movie or any, like, yeah. creepy thing scurrying in the crawl spaces movie. You move into a house. You go into a house. That house has history. You don't know who lived and died there. You don't know who murdered there. You don't know who's living there right now. Hmm. Underneath the floorboards. <laughs> you don't know. Like, that's yeah. that, that's the fundamentally behind a lot of movies about any hmm. creepy place. Yeah. So the idea that we're putting a modern spin on it because the way that we're interacting with these places is new all that's just kind of it's just the modern version it's it's just the modern version of it we're gonna do that and sometimes the things that we're like turning into something scary Mm. will in time have revealed to have been short-lived or fad and we'll look at those films as novelties like something like death spa no, there you Where go. it's like, oh, it's a killer uh, fitness uh, spa, but like in a very 80s fashion, not just like a typical gym. Uh, and that movie is aged in a very adorable way. <laughs> this one's already aging is the thing. It's yeah. about Instagram influencers and their fear of B&Bs. Yeah. Like this speaks to uh, this very specific like five-year period we're yeah. currently living in. Or again, even if, even if that is you, it's a relatively small number of people. Yeah. And yeah, so as a result, you feel like you're a little bit like on the outside looking in at this phobia. Yeah. Like I don't, yeah. you don't really connect to the phobia. Okay. So, so even though I'm not connecting to the phobia, I think it still works as a good, uh, like stalker movie, home okay. invasion kind of flick. And like I said, the, the, the actors are all very committed. And whenever Barbara Crampton shows up, I'm happy. She's so <laughs> Barbara Crampton she's is a, so wonderful. She's an icon for a reason. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad she's got the credit she deserves. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Uh, once again, if you're new or if you forgot, uh, we review movies on a scale of C minus to C plus. The absolute best you can get in our eyes is a C plus that is above average. Mm-hmm. Everything from we just genuinely recommend this to it's the best movie ever made. Below that, a C. C is average. Things are average. Things have some good and some bad. Maybe they're just okay. Mm-hmm. Meh. C. <laughs> Anything we don't recommend or possibly something we think is genuinely terrible gets a C minus that is below average. How does Superhost mm. hold up? Uh, I'll give it a C. Okay. I, I think it's it's certainly watchable. Uh, I I wish it had a, a little bit something more thoughtful to say other than mm. we fear B&Bs. But yeah, there's some good scares and some really good performances um, and, and some good kills by the end. Right, what about Worth? Worth, uh, I'm going to give it a C-. minus. I, I think this is... Uh, a, a non-story with some good performances in it. And because it's dealing with such heady subject matter, we're tempted to think that there's something really kind of cathartic going on when really there's not a lot happening in this movie. No, I, th- I think, 
I wrote a review of this for The Wrap, but I think I really found my point when I was talking to you. This is a great short film that doesn't that doesn't work as a long film structure. Yeah. Because yeah. it just doesn't have the highs and lows and the and the well, it, the peaks and valleys don't feel genuine it, because they feel very contrived. And it the actual as, meat of it is just bureaucracy. Uh, it's it's all bureaucracy. If if you did have uh, just like seventy minutes of it, it's a it's a, almost two hours. It's a pretty long film. If you just had it like a seventy minute film, that could still work too. Yeah. Not, you know, it could be a 20-minute short as well. <laughs> Just keep yeah. whittling it down. Why not? Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm going to give it a C- minus as well. Uh, mm. It's kind of interesting to talk about why it doesn't work, mm. but it's not actually very good, even though I will say this, the performances are all great. Mm. Uh, maybe not Tucci, but Tucci's just doing his job. But, like, everyone else is doing awesome. Uh, uh, let's see. Cinderella, C-. minus. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's not, uh, it's not so, good. It's so bad. You would think it's it'd be, like, train fun. wreck interesting. It's not. It's just... It's not. It's not very good. It's not very well thought out. The musical numbers aren't very interesting. The comedy. There's like maybe two laughs in the whole movie. The prince is not a good character at all, and I don't care. Um, it doesn't work as a film mm. at all, which is a damn shame. Uh, so C minus for me as well. C minus for me confirmed. as well. Yes, right. confirmed. And then lastly, <laughs> and then lastly, I didn't see it. Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh, it's a C. I mean, okay. it's it's just a a good lightweight hoot. There's, there's not a lot of weight in this, but there's a lot of fun, and Tony Leung is, of course, always a delight. Um, there's, there's a lot of silly stuff in it, but it's all in the name of good fun. So, yeah, good good sort of forgettable popcorn flick. Awesome. All right, well, that is Critically Acclaimed for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with reviews of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think James Wan has a new movie. Yay. Uh, James Wan, look over his career. Is, <sighs> is he the biggest filmmaker right now? Because, it's an argument to be made. Because he has started Conjuring. He started... Uh, the Insidious. Insidious. Mm-hmm. As franchises. He started Saw. Saw. All franchises. He did one of the Fast and the Furious movies. Mm-hmm. And he did, he did Aquaman, when made did, that a billion dollar movie, and yeah. nobody thought that would happen. He made a billion dollars off of Aquaman. <laughs> yeah. Think about that for a second. Yeah, James Wan is... James Wan is... People are talking about it. Arguably one of the biggest filmmakers we have today. And uh, certainly... One of the titans of horror that we have working yeah, for sure. actively, and he's doing uh, another horror film, yeah. uh, which is another single evil adjective as its title. It's called malignant. Malignant. I would. I. I wonder if there is. You know, there was a meeting hmm. where some person in the marketing department or whatever was like, "Okay, we're gonna this malignant poster." I know it's like from the director of Saw hmm. and Insidious and The Conjuring. Those didn't make as much money. It should be from the director of Aquaman and Furious 7. Because those were gigantic, those were gigantic hits, hits, yeah. Right? And I'm like, you know someone wanted that. <laughs> and that would be hilarious. <laughs> from, from the director terrifying. of Aquaman. <laughs> right? Like, mm, no. It is from the director of Aquaman. It is from the director of Aquaman. No one's denying that. But it's just not really the tone we're trying to strike. But anyway, there's that coming out and other stuff yeah, as well. I'm, we'll I'm, excited, I'm excited about James Wan. Like, the huge filmmaker that... It isn't in the like the huge filmmaker conversation. It's still yeah. oh, the, this it's still all the previous generation. It's like oh, James Cameron and, yeah. and Steven Spielberg. It's like James Wan is right here. He's yeah, doing it. Big fucking deal. He's actually. right here in front of you, making yeah. these movies that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, but he's still a horror director, so yeah. except for Aquaman and Furious Seven, two of the seems, biggest hits of all time. I gotta digress. Anyway, that's coming up yeah. on the next Critically Acclaimed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, especially to our patrons, without whom this show and all of our other programmings would be completely impossible. Mm. So we're incredibly grateful to you. Thank you so much. Uh, if you want to join the Patreon uh, 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 crew, head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a lot of exclusive stuff for you. 
just waiting to be explored. If you sign up now at any tier, there's a huge back catalog of commentary tracks, podcasts about Star Trek, podcasts about Star Wars, podcasts about Batman, uh, podcasts. We have uh, podcasts that we're not even doing anymore, but the whole back catalog is available. Mm-hmm. We talk about uh, forgotten Disney movies. Uh, we did a whole uh, retrospective on every single episode of Firefly. Uh, we have a lot. Uh, so, by all means, come on down. Uh, if you want to uh, talk about anything we discussed in this episode, you want to discuss anything that uh, maybe you disagree with or that you want to find out more about, you want to ask us questions, whatever, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email and answer it in an upcoming episode of our podcast, We've Got Mail. We also have a P.O. box. And by the way, thank you to the people who recently sent us Elvira mugs. <laughs> we got a gift. Thank you so much. That was cool. Uh, and also yeah. deodorant for Whitney. That I, I, I'm. <laughs> I don't think that was from a fan. <laughs> okay, so during during the pandemic, I I just idly started entering uh, like giveaways on Instagram. It's oh, like, so it's you just like one deodorant. So, so it's like it's like do you do you want like a free deodorant thing? Just hit the little heart. And tag a friend, like... So you, hit, just, you just randomly want deodorant. It's like, okay, uh, like, subscribe, and William, I tag you in a lot okay. of these things. You I, do. I, I, I've I know given you, you permission. I know you have an Instagram account that you don't use a lot, so I, I just almost, sort of tag I, you. I like other people's stuff, and that's yeah. it. I almost never post. <laughs> I really uh, don't so, know why I have it, honestly. I but, just have it just in case it's important later, I But guess. in so doing, I've somehow made my way onto, like, all these mailing lists, and I'm getting, like free skin toners in the mail now and i think i just got a like a free thing of deodorant okay. because i'm on somebody's mailing list somewhere. okay well i guess that's that might be the case if you sent whitney the deodorant please email him so he yeah, knows th- thank you if, <laughs> if the deodorant was a gift um <laughs> a thank you b what are you saying uh, <laughs> it looks nice deodorant it looks like great quality stuff i'm, I'm sure it's fine yeah. but no yeah. I, mean, I do uh, love my elvira mug so thank you for that um <laughs> That's very cool. But also, you can send us in letters, and we'll read your letters. Or, you know, we can hear the paper crinkling on the microphone. Mm. Um, so we got that going on as well. We're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, Whitney has another podcast, which you will briefly mention. I, I do indeed. Uh, over on uh, the uh, podcast network, The Screen's Margins, started by B. Peterson. Uh, they and I talk about uh, what we see on the streaming service Ovid every week. The podcast is called All About Ovid, spelled with all O's. Uh, and uh, this last week we talked about uh, um, you could do it oh gosh uh, that, that one film. Too, too Late to Die Young is the, the title of the film Too Late to Die Young is a really 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 excellent movie that's on Ovid right now it's actually also on the Criterion channel okay. so if you when, have when is it Too Late to Die Young like when you're like 30 40 <laughs> what's what's the cutoff uh, adolescence oh yeah According to this film, it's, I feel it's, like it's, that's it's, a, that's, a, that's objective. Yeah, it's 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 a coming of age uh, okay. uh, Chilean drama, and it's just really really excellent. And uh, mm. B and I talked about that movie, uh, as well as uh, another film by the same filmmaker called mm. Thursday Till Sunday on our last episode. Yeah, but every week we get together and just sort of chinwag a little bit about nice. the films we saw in Ovid because Ovid has an excellent selection. It is like deep cut art house and international cinema. It's all the stuff I'm interested in. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm glad uh, B has given me an excuse to watch those films and they and I talk about it. It's That's really great. wonderful. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, I also have a soap store that I run with M. Lapis da Silva. They design most of the soaps. I do a few. Uh, and uh, we have uh, a bunch of new soaps that have just debuted uh, for the month of September, uh, including, uh, so we had a Lady Macbeth soap, which is quite nice. Uh, we have a pumpkin heart soap. Mm. Uh, and uh, we have a, a coffee cola soap, which smells like coffee and soda together, and it's caffeinated mm. soap. 
So that one's only for uh, adults. Kids shouldn't have caffeinated soap. It'll caffeinate them. Um, but uh, these are all really wonderful things. We hope everyone enjoys them. Head on over to our Etsy store. You can also follow us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at SaltCatSoap. And there's a link to the Etsy store uh, right there. So thank you, everybody, who's already tried that out. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>